We're now turned to reading from the book of Deuteronomy. We're reading more of God's word for us. We look at the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 1 through 18. It's encouraging to hear God's gift of forgiveness, especially when we read a passage like this where God is showing his people, his own people, how often they are sinning against him. And that's something for us to hear and to listen to very carefully as we hear from God's word from Deuteronomy chapter 32. These are words of Moses. He's speaking to the people of Israel. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak and let the earth hear the words of my mouth. May my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, like gentle rain upon the tender grass and like showers upon the herb. For I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright, is he. They have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Do you thus repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Is not he your father who created you, who made you and established you? Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he will show you, your elders and they will tell you. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind... He fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. He found him in a desert land and in the howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled him. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions. The Lord alone guided him. No foreign god was with him. He made him ride on the high places of the land, and he ate the produce of the field, and he suckled him with honey out of the rock and oil out of the flinty rock, curds from the herd and milk from the flock with fat of lambs, rams of Bashan and goats, the very finest of the wheat, and he drank foaming wine made from the blood of the grape. But Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. You grew fat, stout, and sleek. Then he forsook God who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they have never known, to new gods that had come recently whom your father had never dreaded. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you, and you forgot the God who gave you birth. Amen. It was really a prayer that we were singing for God himself to meet us and to help us to understand what he was saying in his word. And let's follow that up with another prayer. Let's pray to God actually for him to send his spirit to illumine our hearts and minds to understand it. Let's pray. Lord, what we just sang was true, that we need you. We need your spirit to be shining into our hearts and to our minds, to be taking away that darkness of sin, to be showing us Jesus Christ and His salvation. Lord, as we do prepare to hear from You and from Your Word, we pray that You would show us wonderful things from Your law, that we would see ourselves more clearly, 
that we would see just how much we need you and that we would see that you have provided Jesus Christ for us. Thank you that you are going to do that. We trust that you are going to do this through your spirit because you have promised this. And we pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we're going to be continuing going through the Gospel of Luke. We're Luke chapter 9, and we're looking at verses 37 to 45. That's Luke chapter 9, verses 37 to 45. Now, as you're turning there, you've been paying attention the past couple of weeks, you may wonder why I'm actually skipping ahead in Luke chapter 9. Remember last time we were looking, Jesus was feeding the 5,000, and then Peter And the disciples are confessing Christ. Then Jesus tells his disciples to take up your cross and follow me. Well, then there's a whole section that I'm skipping. I'm not actually skipping it. The story of Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration where where he's shown in your glory. The reason I've chosen to move on is because I actually preached on that when I was here in August. And some of you may not have heard that because you weren't there. Sorry about that, but I didn't want to preach the same sermon twice. Um, this is a plug for sermon audio because it's on there. I found out this week. <coughs> Thanks to Toby. Um, so this week we are going to move forward. But before we actually look at our passage, I do want to touch on the verses that we're, we're moving over. In Luke chapter 9, verses 28 to 36, it is that picture, that story of Jesus being shown in his glory as the Savior and the one that we are meant to be listening to. It's, remember, in Luke chapter 9, one of the basic questions is, who is Jesus? And when Jesus and his disciples go to the top of the mountain, there is the most dramatic answer given of the entire chapter. Because God himself there on top of the mountain, he himself steps in and he answers that question, who is Jesus? And the way he does that is, remember, he shows Jesus in all of his glory, actually the glory that he has as the Savior when his work is done. So it's a preview of what's coming. God also shows Jesus' glory by providing Moses and Elijah to stand beside him and to show that Jesus is so much better than anything in the Old Testament. And God really finally and conclusively shows Jesus' glory, his identity, and his work by coming to his disciples and by speaking directly to them. He says, this is my son. Listen to him. Those words from God himself, all those things that he has been showing his disciples in that previous, that previous passage... That is a dramatic scene, answering again that basic question. And today in our passage, there's there's a dramatic shift, actually away from that. We have been on that mountain, seeing Jesus' glory, and then today, in our passage, we come with Jesus down off the mountain into just what seems like another day in the life of Jesus, another day of ministry. But as we see this morning, this is a ministry that is shown to result in Jesus' suffering and his death. It's no ordinary ministry that Jesus comes into again. And with that in mind, let's actually read our passage together. We're going to start in verse 37. So on the next day, 
When they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. Now in these verses... Jesus, again, is entering back into his ministry. But as he goes into his ministry, we need to be hearing those words of his father. Listen to him. Listen to my son. Because in this passage, Jesus returns, one of the themes he said before, that he must suffer. The Son of Man must suffer. And that is a truth that does not seem to fit with what people in this passage experience or what people expect from their Savior. But what we're going to see as we look at these verses together is that Jesus shows that people do not understand. People do not understand or believe that He is the kind of Savior that we all need. Jesus is actually showing unbelief that many, many people do not understand or believe that he is the kind of savior that we need. That we need. Today what we're going to do is we're going to simply walk through the story. No three-point sermon today. But as we do go through the story and see the events, there are still some things I want you to pay attention to. In this case, I want you to pay attention to the responses. The responses in this passage are very important. There's the two responses of Jesus. There's the response of the crowds. And then there's the response of the disciples. Kind of sounds like a three-point sermon, I guess. But pay attention to the responses. Now, notice the situation that Jesus steps into here. Again, he's just come down from this great glorifying moment, and he steps into a very difficult situation. There is a man whose son is demon-possessed. And look at the details in verse 39. Behold, a spirit seizes this boy... And he suddenly cries out, it convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. That is a very serious situation that Jesus is facing. But things are actually a lot worse than just that. Notice in the previous verse, in verse 38, the man makes a point. This is my only child. That statement, especially if you're a parent, that should make you feel the pain that this man is experiencing. This child is all he has, both now and in the future. So this is a demon-possessed child. It's his only child. And it's even worse because Jesus' disciples haven't been able to help. In verse 40, he tells Jesus, I went to your disciples, and they failed. So as this man comes to Jesus... Jesus is his last hope. Now, if that's true, if he's tried all these other things, 
And Jesus really is his last hope. If he has this pain, this suffering, and this helplessness, then what does Jesus say to him? Look at verse 41. Jesus answered, Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long must I bear with you? Bring your boy here. Those words, given the context, are shocking. They're completely unexpected, and they even come across as harsh. Jesus is condemning people as he answers this man. But Jesus is not condemning the man. That's really important here. Jesus is not condemning this man for bringing his son to be healed. No, Jesus is actually looking at the crowds as he says this, and he is condemning them. The reason we know that is actually in the book of Mark, in the parallel passage, this man is described as showing faith in Jesus. It's weak faith, yes, but it's true faith. That's where he says, help my unbelief. I do believe. Help my unbelief. And we also know from the rest of Scripture that Jesus never condemns any of us if we have even a little faith in Him. So Jesus is not condemning someone who trusts in Him. But He is actually talking to the crowds. He's talking to everyone else around who's going to watch this miracle and He is condemning them for their unbelief. The people of His own day who are standing there, watching Him, listening to Him, and who in their hearts are rejecting him as the promised Savior. Jesus actually says there, the faithless and twisted generation. That language comes from Moses. We actually looked at it in Deuteronomy. It's from that last song. So right before Moses dies, he teaches this song that we read to the people of Israel. And actually, it's not a very encouraging song. Not at all, actually. It is a song... God says, will be a witness for God against the people of Israel. Because God knows that his people will reject him and serve other gods. Listen to the opening verses of that song again that Moses teaches the people. It says in Deuteronomy, The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. And here's the switch. But they, the people of God, they have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. What Moses is saying is that God is perfect. God is just, but his people, they betray him. They reject him. We actually see that all through the Old Testament, right? That time after time, God sends a prophet to them to win them back to himself. And what do they do? They don't listen to him. They may drive him out. They may even kill God's messengers. And Jesus is saying that that is what's happening now in his day. The people of his own day are just like their fathers. They are again rejecting God by rejecting his messenger. And in this case, it's not just a prophet anymore. It's God's own son, Jesus. Later in Luke, in Luke chapter 11, Jesus again condemns the Jews. He calls them an evil generation for the same reason, because they are rejecting Jesus. Now these are harsh words of Jesus to condemn these people. But you have to remember that Jesus is expressing righteous anger as he speaks to these crowds. 
we very seldom, if any, can really show this kind of righteousness in our anger. So often it's mixed with our own sin. But Jesus here is speaking as the righteous and holy one. And he's asking, how long do I, how long do I as the perfect holy Savior that you need, and I know you need me, how long do I have to stand your rejection of me? That's what Jesus is saying to the crowds. But now that we understand what Jesus means, we're left still with a basic question. Why does Jesus say that now? Why does Jesus say that here as he's about to heal this boy? Why is he condemning the crowds for their unbelief? There's not an immediate answer actually in the text. We have to keep going to find out why Jesus says this. The story actually just keeps going. The man brings the boy to Jesus, and as he comes before Jesus, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. And then Jesus speaks. And just with one simple word of rebuke, Jesus drives away the demon and heals the boy completely. It's just so simple for Jesus to do this. But Jesus' power and authority are on full display here. He speaks. All that he has to do is speak. And the forces of evil immediately have to obey him. That should amaze you. The crowds were amazed when they saw this. This is the response that that they give. All were astonished. Astonished at the majesty of God. They are amazed at what they have just seen. They have seen the majesty of God on display. The power and the greatness of God have been clearly evident as Jesus has healed this boy. Now that seems to be a good response, right? If you saw that miracle, I'd hope that you would be amazed as well, that you'd even be praising God. So why is Jesus condemning the crowd? Why are they still that faithless and twisted generation. Well, now we get to the answer in verses 43 to 44. See, this is not the only time that the crowds have responded this way to Jesus. We see in verse 43, Luke makes the point, they were marveling at everything he was doing. This seems to be referring to to more than one event. This healing, plus the many other things that Jesus has been doing, everything, So so while the crowds are marveling, Jesus responds a second time. And now he's speaking just directly to his disciples. And he says these things in verse 44. Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. For the disciples, I think it's fair to say that this second response is probably as confusing as Jesus' first response. So first, Jesus condemns a crowd that's amazed, and now Jesus seems to be saying that this crowd that is just marveling at what he's doing is going to kill him. You you can imagine what the disciples are thinking here, maybe even saying to Jesus, um, Jesus, something doesn't add up. Can't you see that they love you? Uh, um, But Jesus, you're, you're the Son of Man. You just told us that. And we know the Son of Man is going to reign. Isn't everything going to work out well for that? Why are you telling us that you're going to die? Now, the situation that we have here reminds me, actually, of a a well-known verse from the Old Testament. 
may remember this from when David is uh, anointed king. God speaks to his prophet Samuel. He says, man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. It's not exactly the same situation here, but the principle is the same. We as people can see only so far into a person. That's what the disciples are looking at. They see the crowds. They see, they're praising you, Jesus. But they see only that much into those people. And Jesus looks straight into the hearts of the crowd. He knows what's in their heart. And he speaks and he acts accordingly. As Jesus looks into the hearts of those crowd, the crowd standing there, he does find amazement. He does find excitement, interest. But he does not find faith. The crowd certainly experienced something very dramatic and significant that day. And, and they correctly realize that what they have seen is God at work. So, so they, they have right knowledge. They, they know what they're seeing. And they're experiencing some sort of like intense emotional response. But those two things do not equal faith. Knowledge and emotion do not equal faith. And Jesus knows that they don't actually equal faith because he knows that maybe even some of those very same people standing in that crowd around him that day, or maybe people just like them, would be part of that crowd that will be calling for his death in Jerusalem. This is, this is really a sobering reality for us. That knowledge plus emotion does not equal faith. You have to be careful, right? Because you do need knowledge in order to believe. You need to know that Jesus is the Savior who died for your sins. You need to know that he offers you free salvation. We say that faith is not blind faith. You need to know who and what you're believing in. And you also need emotion in order to believe. Faith is not just some sort of objective calculation. I added up the numbers and Jesus. No, that's not how it works. You actually need to see your sinfulness, to feel your sinfulness, and you need to turn to Jesus in love. That's an emotion. But most importantly, you need to know, you need to have that emotion, and you actually need to believe. You need to take that next step. Each one of us puts our trust in Jesus Christ alone for our salvation. One of the reasons that I'm making this point is that I think it's true that many people today confuse an experience for saving faith. Maybe they, they felt a certain way when a pastor called them to repent. Maybe it was even an intense feeling. Maybe they even came up to the front when he called them forward. But did they put their trust in Jesus Christ that day? That's the key. And more often than not, how we live our lives from that moment on, whatever that experience was, how we live our lives will actually show whether that was just an emotional response or whether there was something deeper going on, whether it was actually true and saving faith as we see faith worked out in our lives. This response of the crowds falls far short of the response that Jesus actually demands as he proclaims the gospel to us. He actually wants us and is calling for us to put our full trust in him for salvation alone. The crowds don't have that. The crowds don't show that either this day 
or later. The crowd's lack of faith, that's actually part of God's plan. That's actually part of God's plan to bring salvation. That's what's really surprising, I think, about this passage. Notice Jesus' words again. As he's talking to the disciples, he says, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Jesus knows exactly what's going to happen to him when he reaches Jerusalem. He knows that he will be betrayed by Jesus, or by Judas. He knows that he will be beaten, he knows that he'll be mocked, and that he will die on the cross. And he knows that this is the plan of God. Notice that wording, he is about to be delivered. Well, who is delivering Jesus up? It's God, it's not the men who are in charge, it's actually God who is delivering Jesus Peter makes a similar point in his sermon at Pentecost in Acts 2. He says, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So Jesus knows God's plan. He knows that God is the one, God the Father is the one offering him up. But we also need to remember that Jesus himself, as the Son of God, agreed to this plan. Jesus wanted to do this. When the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, way before they created the world, when they were planning the salvation of mankind, the Son agreed to do this. He agreed to carry this out. He agreed to suffer, to be delivered, and to be killed for our salvation. Jesus knows full well that He is the suffering Son of Man, and that His suffering is necessary for salvation and glory. And that's not just a fact that He's resigned to. A fact that He's just... Okay, I guess I have to do it. No, he has lovingly agreed to do it because he actually loves his people to save them. Well, Jesus knows what's going to happen to him and actually communicates it very clearly to his disciples. But his disciples don't understand. Look at verse 45 and the response of the disciples are actually looking at it. It's almost the non-response. They did not understand this saying, and it was concealed for them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. The disciples don't understand what Jesus said, and they're too afraid to ask him. Why, why don't they get it? Why don't they understand what Jesus said there? I mean, the message itself is clear. The Son of Man will suffer. I think that's fairly straightforward. So they get the message, they get the words, but they do not understand the meaning of the message. Again, why does the Son of Man have to suffer? How does his suffering relate to his promised salvation and his rule? We've already seen, remember in Luke chapter 9 earlier, that a suffering Son of Man doesn't seem to fit into the expectations of the disciples. They're looking back at Daniel and they're seeing the Son of Man reigning. And every time Jesus says the Son of Man suffers, you start to see his reality is conflicting with their expectation. But it's more than just that their expectations aren't being met. Something more is going on. Look closely at the verbs in verse 45. It was concealed from them. It's not just that they aren't understanding. It's actually that somebody is doing the concealing of this truth. I think from the context, it's God who is doing this. God is concealing the truth from his disciples. That conclusion may come as a bit of a surprise, especially because we know that God has given the disciples a, a unique privilege, actually, to understand a whole lot more about Jesus and his work. 
think back in the in Matthew, Matthew chapter 13, Jesus is describing the parables. And he tells his disciples, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. But to them, he's pointing to the crowds, to the crowds, it has, been not, it has not been given. This is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing they do not see and hearing, they do not hear. See, the disciples are given the privilege of knowing the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. But, but others, many others in fact, are not. Actually, in the case of parables, the lack of understanding is actually a kind of judgment from God. But, but God isn't judging his disciples here. That's not what's going on. Remember that the disciples are not that faithless and twisted generation. They are not the crowds who don't believe in Jesus. The disciples have true faith in Jesus. And even as, even as we see God is concealing the truth from his disciples, he's only doing that temporarily. That's another important thing to point out here. Because when the disciples see the resurrected Christ, he then shows them the truth, and they understand it. Luke 24, Then he said to them, These are the words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. Almost identical words to what he said in Luke 9. But now, after his resurrection, it's almost like he takes that veil away from their minds and now they fully understand as they see the resurrected Christ, they understand what he's been talking about all along. And when they finally get it, when they finally understand, they embrace and proclaim a suffering son of man to the ends of the earth. And often, as we look at those early disciples, they do that at the cost of their own lives. So what we have in the disciples' response in our passage then is, is God, for his own purposes, temporarily concealing the truth of the suffering son of man from his true followers. But they will soon, very soon, understand when the risen sun speaks to them again. This entire passage actually reminds me of the Passion Week. Jesus is pointing us forward to when he enters into Jerusalem. That's the week of when Jesus comes into Jerusalem. He's triumphant. He's greeted as a king, the son of David. And it's that very same week of his beating, his trial, and his death. And it's also... The week of his resurrection. See, in Luke 9, the disciples can't understand how people who could recognize the majesty of God, how those people could ever murder Jesus. That doesn't seem to compute for them. But in that one week in Jerusalem, the crowds see Jesus. The disciples see the crowds treating Jesus as the king. And then they see those same crowds treating him as the worst criminal and putting him to death. Now, we'll actually sing it in a minute in one of our hymns. Sometimes they strew his way and his sweet praises sing, resounding all the days, day hosannas to their king. Then crucify is all their breath, and for his death they thirst and cry. That's majesty to murder all in the space of just a few days. But that's our son of man. That's our Son of Man, actually. This is the Son of Man that we need, the one that we see described here in this passage. We need Jesus. 
to suffer and to die in our place if we have any hope of being saved. And the more we actually know the reality of our sin, the more we see its seriousness and and feel its weight, the more we actually know this, the more actually necessary Christ appears to us, and not just necessary in terms of a calculation, but the more lovely Christ appears to us because we see how great his sacrifice for us really is. This really is the Son of Man that we need. We need the Son of Man who was delivered into the hands of men so that he could die for the sins of men. But we don't just stop by believing in and proclaiming a suffering Son of Man. That's what we should do, but we don't stop there. Because it's through his obedience and death that he is exalted. Remember what we saw in some of the previous passages. That Jesus does not stop in the grave, but he says, I will also surely be resurrected and exalted and reign at the right hand of my Father. And right now, that is the Son of Man, Jesus, that we see. The disciples thought they saw majesty here when Jesus healed a man. But they saw only a small sliver of what we now see in Jesus as a resurrected, reigning Son of Man. And when He returns, just think about that. When He returns, He won't be rejected anymore. He won't suffer at the hands of of sons of men. No, what does He say? When He returns, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that He is Lord of Lords. There is no other response possible on that day. And when he comes back, when people then are forced to confess him, he will come back as judge. He will come back to judge some of these very same people in this crowd here who have turned their backs on him. He will come to judge some of those same people who nailed him to the cross. And he will come to judge people of today who continue to turn their backs on Jesus Christ. But also as he comes to judge those who have opposed him, he also comes to take his people, his true people who have confessed his name, who glory in the suffering Son of Man. He will take his people, you and me, to reign with him forever. That is a truth to be amazingly thankful for in our lives. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, it's true that as we look at this passage, we see the response of so many in our own day, and maybe sometimes even our own responses, that we're amazed by Jesus. We see even his power, but at the end of the day, so many people turn their backs on him. So many people do not believe in him. Lord, if that is any of us here, that we've heard so much about Jesus in our lives, And yet we are still turning our back on him. We pray that you would work true faith in our hearts. And Lord, we would pray also that you would work love in us. That as we look on the suffering Son of Man, Jesus Christ, Lord, that you would show us how great a salvation we have. That you would show us how deep your love for us really is. That you you have willingly chosen to come and suffer and to die for people like us who have rejected you 
but now you've actually saved and changed and are bringing to reign with you. We pray that you would make us grateful and obedient to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.